someone, I wish I could remember who it was, said to me the mistake people make is they assume that marriage is a lifelong contract when actually it's a five-year option with the right to renew <laughs> and that sounds so bleak but I kind of loved it like that I, well look it hit me at the right time when it was not going to work at the five-year point but just great peace that, that funny thing finding out from my friend the author John Ronson who had been at my wedding that at the moment when it was like you know our Judaic equivalent of you may now kiss the bride my mum turned to John and said yeah I give him 50 50 <laughs> and that's just been genius to me because there isn't any other option except 50 50 like you either will stay together forever or at some point you will break up and I think I feel a peace with that Welcome to another season of Alonement, the podcast about the time you spend alone and why it matters. I'm your host, Francesca Spector, author of Alonement, How to Be Alone and Absolutely Own It, and a former extreme extrovert who, a few years ago, discovered the life-changing power of taking some time to myself. On this show, I interview fascinating people who can give inspiration and practical advice on how to make your alone time the best it can be. Because when alone time isn't lonely, it's alonement. This week, I'm speaking to Emma Forrest, a British-American novelist, screenwriter and film director. She has an incredible career and an incredible story. Although she comes from London, she's lived in both New York and glamorous LA, where she worked with the likes of Jemima Kirk and Jamie Dornan on her film, which she directed, Untogether, and publishing multiple novels and non-fiction titles. Her most recent book is a memoir called Busy Being Free, which chronicles her divorce from actor Ben Mendelsohn. She has described this book as a love letter to being alive or being alone. And this, as you might suspect, is one of the many reasons I'm so intrigued to speak to her today. Before we get to the episode, I want to give a big shout out to this season's sponsor, Flashpack, a travel company for solo travellers in their 30s and 40s, providing boutique group adventures all around the world. There's trips to Bali, Morocco, Sri Lanka, Japan. The world is your oyster. I've been working with Flashpack since the beginning of this year. And last April, I had the chance to experience one of their adventures for myself, traveling the hotspots of Colombia. I made so many new friends, many of whom I'm still in touch with, and had the kind of colorful, memorable experiences I'd been craving for the past couple of years of lockdown, including salsa dancing, boat trips, and eating delicious South American cuisine. What's incredible about going away with Flashpack is that you get the best of both worlds. Wonderful company, if you'd like it, and the ease of having someone else sort out the logistics, but also the independence of choosing where and when you'd like to have an adventure. If you'd like to experience a Flashpack holiday for yourself, they've provided an exclusive discount offer to all Alonement listeners. Quote the code ALONEMENT to give you £100 off your dream trip today. Emma, thank you so much for agreeing to speak to me today. I know you've got your book launch coming up in just a few days now. Yes, I do. Don't I? Oh, gosh. Yes. But um, thank you for the distraction. It's a pleasure to be here and it's probably good for my anxiety just to be very, very busy. Yeah. 
Well, I read it and it's brilliant, so you have absolutely nothing to worry about. And you know, the reason I immediately was so grabbed by the title is because you are a woman after my own heart. Your book title is Busy Being Free, A Lifelong Romantic is Seduced by Solitude. So first question, what does the word alone mean to you? I immediately switch it out for solitude. It's something I've always enjoyed, you know, my worst point in the history of being a writer is when I was living in LA as a screenwriter and there was a writer's strike and it was mandated by the Writers Guild that you had to spend a certain amount of hours every week protesting with other writers, you know, outside the studios. And I was like, no, we became writers so we can be left alone in a room never to be exposed to the rest of society like that. I find that hard. I find dinner parties hard. I find bars hard. I like being by myself. I was kind of built for lockdown. I don't want to sound flippant because it was such a terrible time for so many people, but it was something I was sort of built for. Yeah, to be honest, whenever I hear that someone had a good lockdown, I'm like, great, you know, I because yeah. <laughs> I had a horrible lockdown, but I'm just like, this yeah. is music to my ears. I yeah. love that the world was, you know, imploding and that there was some silver lining to it. Yeah. I find that super interesting, though, because I think, I don't know, maybe I speak for a few people listening on, on this point. The thing that I'm scared about, about having kids, is that... Yeah. I wouldn't be able to have that solitude. So that's amazing, that image of you and your daughter being in a room sort of alone together. Well, it's funny you say that because not in a judgmental way, but you know, fairly recently, another mother was amazed when I explained, no, no, at the weekend, you know, she knows that for an hour and a half on a Saturday afternoon, I'm going to be reading the newspaper. And so she does her thing. She's like, what? Like, oh, am I, I don't think I'm a terrible parent. I'm hopefully setting up the idea that it's all right for kids to be bored sometimes because then when you're bored you make your own fun I know amazing mums who are so good at being in the playground and doing you know events and things and tree trot adventure playground things and that stuff like breaks my spirit and I've had really honest conversations with my kid where she she said you don't like doing as if I'm like I know that I wonder that must be hard for you sometimes, but I do love drawing with you and making stuff. And I like imaginary play and I may be unusually selfish in the honesty with my kid about that stuff. But I think it's also good for children, especially probably for children of divorce who have been raised mainly by one parent to know you love each other, but you aren't the same person and you can like different things. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, I think when we say bored, quite often that can just be I don't know the uncomfortable thing that we all struggle with of dealing with your own thoughts and I don't know I find it very strange that for instance at schools Mm. social skills are actually built into the curriculum you're taught to be part of a group solitude skills aren't no one actually teaches Mm. you as a young person to be alone so I kind of think you're you know you're setting a good example there because you need both to function well I hope so and I know when I was with her dad like a lot of dads, a big part of his function was and remains in her life, roughhousing, swinging, (laughs) throwing, you know, rolling, all of that stuff. And that my function often was how to be quiet together. Like I loved wherever I've lived, whether I was in a big house or a little place, was it was always important to me be able to see trees in movement from the window. And when she was tiny, little, I was used to we sit there together and just watch the branches of the trees 
moving and just be completely silent together. And I don't know that that's a maternal function, but it's something I really enjoyed doing with her and felt was massively bonding was just quietness. Mm, mm, it's wonderful. It sounds like you're modeling that behavior for her. And, you know, really, how, how do you learn as a young person, if not kind of looking at your parents and what they do? It's nice to have yeah, yeah. Both, both those examples. I hope so. I mean, look, if you're wondering about it already, I just the best thing I can say to someone your age is it's not better or worse than not having a kid. It really freaked me out living in America when people in maternity yoga were like, I can't wait to meet my precious princess. I know that that will be when my life begins. I'm like, that is not how I see it. You know, your life continues. It's a continuation and you're not going to feel any more whole or any less lonely. You're just, it's something different. Mm, mm, It's yeah. I think, you know, it's what you make it. It's not, you don't have mm. to necessarily join I don't know, the parent brigade. I don't Mm-mm-mm. know. It's, <laughs> that's become yeah. a whole different thing. Yeah. Um, but, you know, coming back to, you've spoken about co-parenting now and your book came out of an essay you wrote mm. um, originally about your divorce from your mm. ex-husband, uh, mm. Ben Mendelssohn, mm. called Notes from a Hollywood Divorce that you mm. wrote in The Guardian. And mm. in that, it's like your book, it, it's memoir, it's snapshots from that time in your life. Mm. But the theme that's really come across in the book, as well as that, is this almost move towards from post-divorce towards a love of solitude. How did you make that journey from when you wrote that essay to almost that theme then becoming a big part, you know, indeed the subtitle of the book? Well, I think, well, it actually it did change because I originally thought I was writing a memoir told through my wardrobe because I collect vintage and I thought it was just going to be different chapters about different clothes and essays told through that. And then after a while, I was like, wow, I've been celibate for a long time. Oh, I don't want to not be celibate. I would like to continue this. When I pitched it to close girlfriends, whether they were single or whether they were married and happily married, they're like, oh, my God, my dream is just a day alone. I want to read that book. And that there was a gap in the marketplace for a really romantic look at celibacy. Generally, it's been written about as something bleak or mournful, melancholic. And the idea of like an erotic memoir about not having sex hasn't been done, as far as I know. Mm, mm. But there we're sort of completing solitude and celibacy. What's the relationship there? Because I love how you introduce celibacy as a theme mm. in the book. You said mm. that you were effectively going to be celibate for as long as Trump was in power because yeah. looking at him made you not want to have sex. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Made, made, yeah. Looking at him made you not want to have sex, which was yeah. just brilliant. But how did they uh, conflate? Yeah, be involved. They, well, weirdly, just timing wise, divorce was filed for right when he was elected. I turned 40 right when he was elected. And this is the most famous man on earth, consistently and viscerally horrified by middle-aged women. So they all became entangled in my mind. And part of understanding why they were entangled was just taking the ultimate quiet time. I couldn't have known how quiet the quiet time would be because I didn't know lockdown was coming. But that was like a magic spell it just magnified the power of what of the decision I'd already made because Mm -hmm. remember how there was more bird song during the proper proper lockdown when there were no cars on the road and we could only go out once a day and it became sort of a pagan act that I was like turned on by the sounds of the birds the sounds of the ocean the different 
delineations of green when you look out from a rooftop at the different trees next to each other like it just all I think I've taken ecstasy twice when I was a teenager and that's it but it's what I imagine like a really good ecstasy experience would be like of just being able to delineate everything really clearly Mm. and feel it all and it's that thing it's it's like when you you know god forbid lose a sense then the yeah. other ones become stronger yeah yeah i mean so much the undercurrent of so many things is sex so do you yeah. think that that was what allowed that oh happen? yeah you know what particularly because i moved back to london from america it surprises people in the uk to hear this but it very much felt to me that porn culture had been more successfully more visibly absorbed by the mainstream in the UK than living in LA like it really affronted me to take my small daughter on the underground and just have her blasted with the ads both of us blasted with the ads for all those fast fashion things boohoo and misguided and that you know it's pornographic imagery and she had no choice but to see it and neither did I it surprises people but that was a culture shock for me it was less in my face living and working in Hollywood yeah Hmm. In your book, there's a thing where you talk about cultivating inner quiet um, and you you talk about it, you know, in contrast to um, before with with your ex-husband, you found Hmm. it quite difficult when you would sort of be quiet in the house together, but you learned to almost allow that to happen for yourself alongside him. Is is that something that you've always had? Because you you said that you liked solitude or is that something that happened more after the divorce or in that process? It's tricky because my first memoir had a lot of mental health depression and manic depression exploration so of course the people you love are on edge when you say you want to be alone if you have a history of going to bed and not getting out of it all day long and I did have moments of wondering myself whether the ecstasy I felt the pagan ecstasy I felt at just being alive in the world and at the expanse of sky I could see from my flat whether that was a manic break, like it re- that frightened me. That's something I did second guess. And ultimately it didn't become anything self-destructive that you would associate with depression or mania. But because of my history, I did, I probably didn't take it right away for what it was. It frightened me a little bit. That's really difficult. Yeah, it was, it was. But then eventually with the quiet, you can tell what's what. Just like I've said, you could delineate the greens in the trees. Like you just could see, I can see clearly now the rain has gone. You know, it just, it takes time and courage to sit with yourself and whether you drink too much, take too many drugs, overeat, have reckless sex. It's all about not wanting to sit in a feeling. So everyone can benefit however you get there with feeling the feelings more. Mm. But the natural route out of that the sort of socially acceptable at least in the UK way mm. out of that is alcohol and you've never drunk at all no no I've tasted alcohol. like I've, I probably drink two drinks a year it's not it's just not for me and was never part of my vocabulary and potentially my life would have been easier if I had been a drinker it definitely I felt excluded me from some friendship groups I would have liked to have been a part of growing up in the UK honestly it just makes me fall asleep and like have five sips and like home now bedtime (laughs) so it doesn't work like it doesn't do what it's meant to do Mm. for me so like I say it's just not ever been a part of my vocabulary and sex hasn't been either it's been romantic obsession Mm. that Mm. has been the thing I've lost myself in 
Yeah, and that's bottomless. I think the you know the sex at least there's a climax. There's a, there's a point. Yeah, in yeah, which yeah, yeah. There's a release in that. I, yeah. I suppose those prolonged sort of obsessions and and you know I, I say it having full well had them myself. Like you kind of you drift away to that place and there's no way it could be culminated because it's all in your head. That's what makes it so brilliant. Well, you know what it is. It, this is before smartphones existed, but it was my own smartphone to lose myself in forever and not look up and not see the world. So that's why I keep coming back to this sort of like pagan feeling of seeing the sky, seeing the ocean, seeing the colors of green in the trees, because it was like that moment when you look up from scrolling and realize how long you've been looking into one spot and not outwards. Mm, that's I've never heard anyone conflate romantic obsession with a uh, smartphone, but mm. yeah, that's, mm. that's so interesting. And, and, I mean, do you think, is this a gendered thing or is this something we're all capable of? This sort of almost, again, like alcohol was sort of bad for you, but normalised romantic addiction. Mm, that we... I think it's possible for anybody. I think the very rich inner emotional dreamscape is something we associate not just with women, sort of more specifically with teenage girls, you know, the, the inner life of the teenage girl. And I suppose what I've written here to some extent is the rich emotional inner life of the middle-aged woman which is generally considered less palatable less interesting less sexy than that of a very young woman and just giving myself permission to dream into it and share what I'm seeing and what I've found and what's there and not being afraid that that is going to seem narcissistic or self-obsessed because you know you don't you don't have to read it. At this point, I'd love to give a shout out to this episode's sponsor, Duolingo, the world's number one language learning app, which offers 100 courses across 41 languages. As my Instagram followers will know, I swapped my dating app habit for learning Spanish via Duolingo earlier this year. It's been so easy to fit around my day-to-day life. And six months in, I'm hooked on doing the fun bite-sized lessons for just a few minutes a day. I love chatting to locals during my travels to Spanish-speaking countries, as well as continuing this enriching adult education journey daily here in London. The main Duolingo app is free and always will be, as the company mission is to make language learning available to everyone. However, if you'd like to try the ad-free version, Duolingo Plus, with lots of special extra features, then quote the promo code ALONEMENT for a complimentary one-month trial. Download the world's number one language learning app today. Memoirs, I think I read the other day, are the best-selling sector in non-fiction at the moment. So yeah. I mean, people are reading them and yeah. because, you know, it's not narcissistic, it's generous. People are seeing themselves in you. And I think that a lot of what you speak about is aspirational. I love reflections on solitude or on singleness mm. that are aspirational, that give a glamour to it. Mm, mm, that, mm, you know, mm. as, you, as you say, rightfully, you know, the experience of being a middle-aged woman hasn't had that, you know, yeah. glamour in the past. And I think finally, we're actually guessing that actually it's, it's a hell of a lot more interesting than reading something about, you know, being a well, 20-something. Yeah. I mean, when I moved back to London after two decades in America, I just got really lucky because I moved back to this parade of incredible books by middle-aged women. There was, you know, Catlin Moran's books, um, Deborah Levy's books, Rachel Cusk's books. And it just felt like the, 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 the groundbreaking was being done 
Patricia Lockwood's memoir, I Adore, by middle-aged women in all these different flavours, but it was hard not to notice, you know. Mm. And it, yeah, you're right. It is It is sort of kind of a fairly recent thing and it's, it's brilliant. But I mean, do you think there is something about that period of life? Because, you know, it's, it's post that pressure to have kids to what well, marry I don't know it's, it's, it's really funny that people always think marriage is forever but everyone assumes that it will be and so they ask you when you're going to settle down and do that mm-hmm. um in your sort of you know 20s 30s mm. do you think that's where the freedom comes from that not having those assumptions foisted upon you someone I wish I could remember who it was said to me the mistake people make is they assume that marriage is a lifelong contract when actually it's a five-year option with the right to renew (laughs) and that sounds so bleak but I kind of loved it Mm. like that well look it hit me at the right time when it was not going to work at the five-year point but just great peace that that funny thing finding out from my friend the author John Ronson who had been at my wedding that at the moment when it was like you know our Judaic equivalent of you may now kiss the bride my mum turned to John and said yeah, I give them 50-50. <laughs> and that's just been genius to me because there isn't any other option except 50-50. Like you either will stay together forever or at some point you will break up. And I think I feel a peace with that. Mm. Which actually brings me around to something that I wanted to ask you about, yeah. which is the fact that you seem to have a very happy functional divorce, which is something that weird, you know, talk it? about aspirational. That's I something know. that if most, you know, if half a yeah. marriage is ended in divorce. Yeah. Well, there's a okay, so there's a couple of one, we're super weird. We're both so we're very strange people and we were always strange. So it makes sense to have a strange breakup. Two, and this is really important we came to each other as fans. Like I had seen his movie Animal Kingdom and thought he was just so amazing. And he had read my first memoir, The Voice in My Head, and thought that was amazing. And so by the time we got together and then when it didn't work out, you're still left with this admiration that was the foundational thing. It was a massive, massive, massive gift he's given me to have read a memoir that he's in, that he wouldn't choose to be in because he's very shy and very private and said to me, like his key question was, do you feel that what you're writing here will move the ball ahead just in terms of the literary, the pure literary tradition? I was like, I hope so. He's like, then then publish it. I'd rather stay anonymous and that you didn't publish it. But if you think that the work you're doing will move the literary ball ahead, then you've got to publish it. And that's, that's a, a gift you can't really dream of you know well I mean in the book you talk about almost the downside I suppose of being part of a creative couple is that Mm. quite often creative partnerships do end um you know and it can be it can get messy but I guess the benefit is when you then write a memoir about your divorce they're Mm. they're for it as long as it's brilliant which it is well I thank you very much (laughs) I also I had seen the first review the other day it was in Times and it was lovely and and of all the lovely things, the thing that was really special to me was when the journalist um, summarised my describing the marriage. They said there's absolutely no sense here of point scoring or I'm trying to remember the way she phrased it, but no sense of point scoring, just sadness at the lost love. And that's true. It's like, it's just nobody's done anything wrong. Nobody's a bad person. Life is sad here with someone who helped you and you left each other in better shape and you found each other. And 
that's all you can ever ask, you know. Um, he still moves me, like I find him very moving. And I think he feels the same about me and we can't live together. We don't work, you know, talk about alonement, my God, you know, living together with each other is like a pure nightmare, but we really enjoy each other when we don't have to share space. <laughs> I've had a few people on this show who, uh, specifically talking about co-parenting, who mm. talk about, you know, doing that. And yeah. I don't know, it, it kind of occurs to me every time where I think we don't really validate certain relationship models, but actually mm. a lot can exist in the gray area. I think mm-hmm. what you have with Ben seems mm. like, okay, not exactly what you maybe envision as a six-year-old, but mm. something that actually is, is a good way to go as well. And it's kind of nice knowing that in and of itself, divorce doesn't have to be a failure. It's more an acceptance. Yeah, but I'm, all, I'm, all, I'm also really lucky that the it, 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 he has a big daughter who... A is an awesome human, but I also I really love her mum and we get on brilliantly. And then the lady that he is now engaged to, mm. I just I just really dig her. I really like her. And that just is very makes feel comforted and safe that the woman before and after is someone you admire. It makes you feel good about yourself, mm. I think, if you're smart, you know. That's a really interesting dynamic, actually. Yeah. Kind of- because they do I mean I you know god I I still opt out of any updates notifications from anyone you know from anyone about my ex just because I don't really want to know and not that not that it matters not that it changes where you're going to be or how you're going to feel in your life it's like that kind of thing not that being in a relationship is success but like their success is not your failure sort of thing Mm -hmm. it's hard to kind of accept yeah both at once I suppose yeah 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 it's uh, people don't like gray areas no, people really yeah. don't. Yeah. That's why most people aren't writers. Yeah. <laughs> and for you, how you know how do you feel going forward? Because you didn't rush into a relationship. In fact, you you very much did the opposite. Yeah. Uh, you know, after divorce, do you think that perhaps you are good at being single? There is part of you that is yeah. like, better at being single at this age. Yeah, yeah. It got addictive as well. Mm. Like it really felt like a high. It felt so liberating. I talk about in the book about being at an age where a woman has to contort themselves physically, you know, and emotionally and spiritually to keep getting chosen for the team. How great it felt to say, I'm not playing. I'm just not playing. Like, put your ball down. I'm not playing this game. So I suppose it feels, not fills me, provides some trepidation, the idea of being like, oh, continuing to die the gray part of my hair I'm in that funny place where it's like it would just as a very surface example that that goes somewhat deeper I don't have much gray hair but I have some gray hair and I have dark hair so it shows up if I don't dye it. it's annoying and if it were all gray if it were all white like Emmy Lou Harris like Google image Emmy Lou Harris she anyone who ages who gets gray hair prematurely like too young I always think it looks amazing it looks so sexy because it's somewhere it shouldn't be you're like it's so obvious that person's not meant to have gray hair yet it looks hot and just being in this strange like I have like a Jesus's crown of thorns of gray just around my forehead it's neither one thing or another and I think I'll feel more at ease with it all once it's irrefutable Hmm. rather than does she know that some grays are showing you know rather than this feeling of being caught out 
Yes, I know what you mean. There's that sense of choice versus. Yeah. I mean, my my mother actually is, you know, recently did embrace from being yeah. platinum blonde all of yeah. her life, going gray, and yeah. it, she looks incredible. I mean, at yeah. my brother's wedding, she was there, and with this, and people honestly, people ask her if she dyes it that color. It's incredible, but yeah. it does. I think it's being caught up in because I I got chills when you said that thing about not you know being picked for the team that kind of sense you know of folding yourself up as a woman that thing we've Mm. done all of our lives and that is that is patriarchy that is this Mm. but then I think grey hair is actually quite a fascinating thing at the moment Mm. because it's on the cusp of there's this big movement for it and it's brilliant mm, but then mm, it's the thing that very traditionally and this is going back you know yeah. our mothers our grand grandmothers yeah. was something that they were avoiding and we probably yeah. watched that and were conditioned that way yeah 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 no I'm not ready for it you know I'm not there yet yeah I think um yeah but it's, it's interesting how that's like a physical mani- manifestation that's mm. that influences how you feel mm, around singleness mm-hmm. yeah yeah I think so I mean I those days I get resentful when I am with someone about shaving my legs and thinking I'd rather not date than shave my legs but then the other option that I'm not at yet that will be the next stage is not shaving your legs and dating Mm. you know rather than thinking it has to be one or the other this is making me think of um, the whole guilty feminist thing, the Deborah Francis Wyatt's um, yeah. conversation. I think that, well, well, yeah, I, I, I hear you. And I, hear, I think a lot of guilty feminists are hearing us too yeah. on that. It's almost like the weight of opting out. The I don't know, almost the burden of having to do that and being this mm. person that dies on that hill seems like too much. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not ready for it. Mm. I hope that's the next step. <laughs> And I wanted to ask, um, there was a really great bit where you're talking about a sexual fantasy that you had in lockdown around writing all day in yeah. an office and then and being alone, being by yourself and being able to have that creative flow. Yeah. Uh, and then, but having a man waiting for you and then that the being end. the sexual experience at the yeah. end. Unpack that for me because I just was fascinated by that. I can't really get turned on if I'm stressed about work. And if I, as a writer, I don't feel like... A, a writer unless I've written in a day and that can mean a paragraph that can mean notes in a diary that later in the week will get turned into a significant piece of writing it can mean editing something I've already written but I don't feel like myself if I don't do it so I don't know how to be myself in sex if I haven't done it it's just some for right or wrong it's it's just a gigantic it's my core identity is the writer lady you know that is so interesting uh, and I don't, you know, I don't think it would necessarily be obvious to non-creatives how much mm. that is interlinked, that mm-hmm. act of creativity of flow with well, it's flow, yourself. right? I mean, that's the that's the word flow. Yeah. You know, the 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 idea of the writing flow where you let go and it just washes over you. The idea of reaching orgasm where you let are able to let go and it just all washes over you. Like they're very, they are reflections of each other for mm. me. Mm, yeah I don't know I think there is something about that though as well it kind of reminds me almost of you know when people talk about like the emotional labor of uh, mm. you know being being a partner being a mother um, and like how mm. that can often get in the way you know that almost like mm-hmm. you're you're not having written something wonderful can sometimes also be like similarly to like getting something off your to-do list like doing the washing up I suppose because well, 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 see that do no, but here's the thing that's really important is I don't need it to be wonderful. I just need it to be something. Yeah. Which is different from sex. I'd rather not have sex than have bad sex, but I don't <laughs> mind. But I don't mind doing bad writing in a right. day so long as so long as it's writing. Mm, but that's that's where 
alone functions really it's, mm. it's not the being alone it's the being able to be alone with your work yeah there's an interesting bit and this this actually is in the essay that then became your book you speak about loneliness as distinct yeah. from being alone and you say that for Ben the phrase how lonely was like the ultimate insult yeah yeah did you did you, did you ever feel like that or did you always have different views on that no I think that was really triggering for me I always noticed that that's another one of the the reasons I it was just a phrase that would come up a lot and make me really scared for the marriage to end, even though I know that we both knew that it needed to end. How lonely. It's like, oh my God, like that haunted my dreams, I think, and my nightmares, that that was the worst thing you could possibly say about anyone as far as he concerned. Mm. And he wasn't doing that on purpose to wind me up, but it totally wound me up. Yeah. Mm. It's interesting to hear you say it aloud because I remember reading it in the book and thinking oh I wonder how that's expressed you know and it is that kind of haunting yeah. haunting feeling because obviously towards the end of a relationship that's the thing that we fear do you think that that thing perhaps haunted you a little bit in terms of being able to work up to ending ending the marriage well it was very much mutual and that thing where we could only one at a time explore the idea of it ending and there was always the other one who was like, no, my heart is still facing towards you. But then there just comes the moment you're Thelma and Louise driving off the cliff together. And it's mm. awful, but it's kind of beautiful, you know. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great image. <laughs> uh, finally, so, you know, the complete opposite to lonely and the reason that I invented the word is alonement. And that means mm. when time by yourself is, you know, in and of itself, by definition, mm. positive, restorative. Mm. Mm. what is that time for you Ooh, you know what I love doing I love going to movies alone because to me there's no greater pleasure in life than walking out of a bad movie like and I can tell within eight minutes I'm like no not having it and if you're with someone any reasonable human it's like you can't just get up and walk out of a movie after eight minutes but I honestly think it's one of the great pleasures of being alive is not sitting through bad art and other humans always want you to stick with it. So no, like that to me is the great pleasure of alonement is not giving another moment of my time to this thing that isn't working for me, going to go eat something delicious. What about when it's good? <laughs> no, then you stay for it. Yeah, it's fabulous. But yeah, no, no, it's so you interesting. But your favourite bit is being able to leave when you want to. Yeah, all done. That was my daughter's first words, all done. She was looking at her food, all done. And I use it all the time. <laughs> movies books all done I've read the first page this doesn't work for me all done it's very interesting that we go from leaving a relationship to leaving a movie as well actually yeah yeah I know I never thought about that until you asked me but yeah that's wonderful I've never heard an answer like that so thank you (laughs) (laughs) thank you for coming up with something so beautifully original Emma thank you so much for coming on the show okay bye Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Alonement. If you loved this episode, then you know what I would really like you to do is to share it with someone that you think would benefit. That's all from me. I'll be back next week with a brand new episode.